cloud computing changed the economics of running a software company. Before the cloud, a software company had to purchase physical machines, which often required thousands of dollars paid up front. The cloud allowed developers to deploy their applications for free, to operate a business for cheap, and to scale without hiring a dedicated team to manage those servers. Building in the cloud is cheap, but scaling in the cloud can get expensive. A growing company can often save money by changing which cloud instances and services they use. They can reduce the number of server instances, they can change the size of compute instances, and they can change the rules around auto-scaling by using monitoring, dashboards, and regular analysis of where money is spent a business can find thousands of dollars of money to be saved per month. There are also broad strategic decisions around cost. One area to study is the use of managed services like Amazon DynamoDB, Google BigQuery, and Amazon Lambda. These services are proprietary and can lead to lock-in. Sometimes they can be quite expensive, but they can save developers hours of time because they're easy to use and they provide high uptime guarantees. Rand Rothschild works at Doit International, a company that helps businesses figure out how to save money on their cloud infrastructure. Rand joins the show to discuss the places where the most money is wasted and how startups can manage their infrastructure in a cost-effective manner. He also tells some stories about significant overspend. Full disclosure, Doit International is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Rand Rothschild, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here. You are the chief business officer of Doit International, and a lot of what you do is around cloud cost optimization. So I want to talk about cloud spend. So a company, when it's getting off the ground, cloud spend is usually not an issue. So I've got some EC2 instances, or maybe I'm standing up my cloud on Heroku or on Firebase. There's a bunch of options, but it's basically free for a startup. When you have no traffic, very few users, it's, it's super cheap. At what stage in a company's growth does spend, does the expense of cloud computing start to become important? So... We believe that actually this is something that especially new customers should take into account very early in the process because it helps not only in predicting your future costs once you're going to be in production and have an X amount of customers, but also to help you better reach a decision on which cloud provider is the right fit for you. Sometimes it's, it can be technical reasons, but in many cases, especially for early stage companies, startups in, more, more, more particularly, it has a very big implication on their business. And this can save them a lot of money if they opt for the cheaper solution, which also answers their technical requirements and challenges. So we would normally recommend for new customers, and this is, by the way, something that we see, that early stage companies that are making the first steps on the cloud are considering what the cost is going to be like once they go to production. Once the company becomes more mature, it has, it, it moved into production, you see the spend going up, you see the uh, utilization of additional services coming into play. It's something that this is the second phase that the customer should analyze their cost in 
to make sure that they are uh, optimal and optimized as much as possible using the right tools and services because making changes and sometimes it can be architectural changes, sometimes it, it uh, requires changes to the application and so on, it will be more difficult to do at a later stage. So it's something that is uh, also very relevant to the early stage and then to the first phase once you, you start production and more uh, uh, bigger deployments. Okay, let's say I have started a company. It's a photo sharing app. You can share photos and videos, and it's all cat pictures. You can only share photos and videos of cats, and my social network gets super popular. It's it's getting lots of traffic, and I've gotten myself into a situation where I'm spending tons of money on infrastructure. If that kind of thing happens to me, what's the typical waste? Where is the waste in the kind of infrastructure that has been built up as that company has scaled? So normally this, the, the problem here is with the way that you actually use the various storage options that the uh, different cloud vendors have. All cloud vendors have more than one storage solution. And what you need to do is to make sure that you store the data the cat images in this case, on the right uh, storage type. If you need it accessible right away, so that's one type of storage. But for images that are less likely to be accessed, I will move them to a different kind of storage, which will be cheaper and much more suitable to the use case at hand. If you build a lifecycle policy around the data that you manage, this will yield uh, optimizations as far as cost is concerned. Uh, and so if we're talking about AWS, is that typically like I've stored all of my images and videos in S3 and the ones that are rarely accessed, I should put them in, I don't know, block storage or something? So yeah, normally on, on AWS, you start with the EBS volumes for the data that is required to have very super fast access. You cannot afford the latency for uh, going to S3. Then on S3, you have uh, frequent access and infrequent access. Then you have the, the, the other option of Glacier for archived images. So if I have, for example, let's say uh, images that the chances of someone requesting them are only uh, uh, 10% of the time, and even in those cases, I can wait a few seconds longer until I, I provide the image, then it will make sense to move the data to the infrequent uh, access storage. So you have to create and think about what kind of information am I storing? What is the probability that someone will request a certain type of images? And so on. So it's something that you have to learn not only on your existing data set, but also as you increase the data set, think about the probability of access and what will make the optimal fit for, that, uh, for those kind of images. When I was in school, we learned about the memory hierarchy. I think that's what it's called. Like you have disk, which is the cheapest in terms of expense, but it's the slowest access time. And then you have, I think, in memory or RAM, which is faster access time, but it's more expensive. It's more scarce. And then there's this set of trade-offs between those types. There's a gradient of different storage mediums between those types, that was kind of a single machine notion. And now we're in this world where you have pretty much the same idea where you have this like trade-off of cost versus access time, but it's moved to distributed systems, 
they're kind of opaque. We don't really understand how they work. I mean, I, maybe or do we understand how? Like, if if you talk about EBS, I think that's that's elastic block storage, right? So you talk about EBS versus S3. Do we even understand how these systems work, or do we just understand that there's some SLA and there's some cost associated with them? So regarding your first observation, observation, so even today you have on AWS, for example, instant store, which is uh, similar to the uh, cache that you had before. So you store images that are, you know, you need to retrieve them super fast on that. But that's rarely the case, especially when you're talking about images, for example. But then you move it to EBS. And unlike before, when disk were the cheapest storage medium, here EBS actually is the uh, most expensive. And then you move to the different types of S3. And even also on EBS, you can go magnetic, you can go SSD uh, disk and, and so on. But if you are really keen on getting the knowledge, you can get it, you can understand how it works. Not AWS do not disclose everything, but you can certainly get a better understanding of what's the optimal solution for you based on how it works. And, and once you understand that, it's easy for you to choose. Mind you, you can always benchmark and test. It's, it's pretty simple to move data from one storage type to another and then run the same test again and see the latency and see the uh, impact also on price. You're talking about cost trade-offs for storage. I hear a lot about cost trade-offs for compute. So when you have these, you, I hear these words like spot instance or reserved instance. And I think these represent different pricing options for uh, servers that you can buy on AWS or on, I think, on Google Cloud. I think Google Cloud has a kind of market like that. Can you tell me about what are the kinds of applications that get into a situation where they need to be co- conscious of the costs of these different compute instance types and, and how do they choose between these different compute instance types? Great, great question. So basically on AWS, for example, today you have three tiers of compute. You have the on-demand, which is the most expensive, which is basically there is no commitment from any side nor uh, from AWS's nor from the customer's end. I pay the highest price for that specific instance Then on top of that, I can take on a commitment, the reserved instances, which is the same instance, but AWS allow me to commit for using a specific family type in a specific region on a specific uh, operating system. And in return, I get a discount. And then you have a totally different kind of uh, machines, which are spot instances, which is something pretty genius uh, that AWS came up with several years back already, which is basically a pool of uh, resources that are not utilized by anyone. And AWS basically gives the uh, option to bid for these resources, like the stock exchange you bid, you can reach discounts level of about 90%, 80% from the on-demand prices. And the challenge here is just knowing how to bid and how to play with those mechanisms. So you can either do it yourself and optimize your spot fleet instances, or you have several uh, third-party solutions that can do that for you. Now, of course, between the on-demand and reserved instances, there are no implications to your application. It's just basically a, a license for commitment that you take on that specific uh, compute. And then on the spot instances, that, of course, changes the whole 
way to look at things because it really depends on the type of application that you are running. Because when you are bidding for resources and getting them, someone can outbid you. And if you set a threshold, a maximum level of threshold that uh, you will not pay above that price and someone outbids you, who will take that resource? And you have like a 30 seconds uh, notification that this resource is going to be taken. Now, let's say that your application is uh, stateless. So that's a great uh, option because you can terminate the session and launch it on a different spot instances. And if you know to manage a stateless application on a spot fleet uh, of resources, that can save you huge amounts of money, especially when when compute is one of the more expensive services on on the cloud today. So you can certainly optimize your spend and also the way that you work using spot instances. Google Cloud, on the other hand, have a different way to do that. They have what is called sustained use discount, which is basically automatic. Any, any VM that is running, for example, a full month will enjoy an automatic 30% discount on the list price. On top of that, you can take uh, what is uh, known as CUD, committed use discount, which is the equivalent of, of reserved instances on AWS. And you have the equivalent for spot instances, you have the preemptible VMs, which basically the main difference between that and AWS's spot instances is the fact that any VM can, uh, you can own it only up to 24 hours. So regardless if someone outbids you or anything like that, the resource will be taken, worst case scenario, after 24 hours. So tell me more about the kinds of applications where the application developer is going to get into a, a situation where their server costs are too much because you talked about the, the, the kinds of applications with the storage costs, like a photo sharing app. But when am I going to get into a situation where my server costs are too expensive and I need to have these spot instances or, res- or, on, or choose between spot and reserved instances? So th- there isn't a simple answer for that because, of course, there is a correlation between the type of instance that you are launching, the more memory and CPU that you need, means that you'll pay more. Of course, operating system is a big factor in this. Windows VMs cost much more than any type of uh, Linux machines. So, of course, when developing applications, make sure that they, from a cost perspective, aspect should run on Linux rather than Windows. Sorry, Microsoft, but it's just too expensive. And then as far as managing the sessions and the state of the application, it's also a factor because, and of course, microservices is a huge factor, especially with the huge boost and uh, interest that containers have shown in the, over the past couple of years and all the orchestration uh, solutions managing the containers. So these are all factors that you need to take into place when developing new applications. So the type of operating system, the state of the application, am I running on a monolithic uh, application or microservices? So I I think that these are, I would say, the three main uh, considerations, but there are others, of course. Another issue that can emerge with too much cost is when a company, if I'm building my cat photo sharing company, uh, cat photo sharing app company, and I use too many managed services, like let's say I use one of these expensive hosted databases that takes care of all my auto scaling and elasticity, and uh, it makes things really fast, but I get to a point where, oh, this is just way too expensive. 
that's just one example. There's lots of managed services that people use, and I love managed services because generally they they speed up your your development time. Like I use Firebase a lot, and Firebase is the perfect example of a of a managed service that takes care of so many different dimensions of engineering for you. But I believe that if you build your app on Firebase, if it gets really big, the economics can get kind of dangerous, and you can be spending a lot on it because it's sort of this you know, takes care of things for you kind of database slash hosting system. So do you have any any advice on managed services and, and when companies get into trouble with managed services? Yeah, again, great question. So normally when you're any new company, startups normally opt for managed services, they don't have the manpower, nor the resources, nor the interest to continue and managing database services, for example, or others by themselves. Remember that companies running on the cloud, cloud is is not their core business. And uh, as you grow, it becomes uh, a huge part of what you do, maintaining that, analyzing, cost optimization, and, and all that. So new customers, new companies start with many services, rightfully so. And What happens when you grow and continue to use managed services, you need to basically analyze the pros and cons of using that. And it's not only on the direct cost aspect that companies should focus on, which is normally the case, unfortunately, because the alternative of running a managed database, okay, I launch a few, uh, uh, let's say a minimum of three VMs, I build my cluster and my uh, monitoring VM, and, and I have a database. But what is my operational cost managing that? Do I need now to hire a DBA or do I need to someone from my ops team to be fully de- dedicated on managing, managing that, that database or other service? So it's something that you need to factor in is the operational overhead as well. And again, going back to my previous comment, remember that cloud is not your business. It's a derivative of what you do. And you should ask yourself the question is, should I manage that solution on my own? Is it something that I'm, I want to do? Is it something that is important for me or I see the value? And it can be financial, of course, but it has also operational aspects to that. So don't forget to look at the operational cost. And it's a premium service. That's the way I look at it. And you always pay more for a premium service. Someone else is managing that for you. So that's where the added cost lies. And is it worthwhile? That's for each you know, company to decide on their own. But for the most part, uh, I rarely encounter companies that want to go back in time and manage their own databases. Normally, it comes, by the way, just to complete that point, when customers opt to manage services on their own, it's coming due to a lack of functionality which is missing in the managed service, not necessarily from the cost aspect. And so one thing I have found about running a business, uh, and I, I run a podcast business, so it's not exactly an infrastructure-intensive business, but we pay for things like uh, podcast editing, hosting of our of our podcast episodes, which are you know on a, a CDN that's a little expensive. We pay for hosting of our WordPress site, which we way overpay for, but it always stays up, so maybe it's fine to pay for that. And one thing that I've realized is what's kind of interesting about business and what's fun about business, or at least the kind of business that I'm in, is 
so first of all, when you start a business, especially a business like a podcast business, you have no idea what the inputs and outputs are going to be. Like you just don't know how much it's going to cost to run it. You don't know how much money you're going to make. You don't know what the unit economics are going to be. You don't know what the operational costs are going to be. But over time, maybe it takes one month, maybe it takes six months, maybe it takes two years, you figure out kind of the ins and outs. And, you know, with some obviously degree of variation, you know, maybe you're, the, the economy spikes and you, and you get a, a huge windfall or the economy crashes and the entire economics of your business start to, you know, slow to a crawl. But you can figure out the inputs and outputs of a business. And once you start to figure out that sort of equation, you know, you can almost draw the equation on a chalkboard if you wanted to, then you start to see, okay, if I just pay $5 for this thing, it will solve a problem that is costing me $10. And that kind of math makes businesses incredibly profitable. If they can figure out the places where they can spend money to make money. That's why why business can be so interesting and why, you know, the choice of vendors can be really important. The choice of services can be really important. The choice of consultants that you go to can be extremely important. And so I, I, I just say all this to motivate the conversation of uh, once a company starts to get to a point where they understand the inputs and outputs of their company, and they can start to say, okay, I can pay for X, and I can get X plus Y in returns, they can start to make these these savvy economics decisions. And I have heard this called, you know, in, it, as it relates to computing, I have heard it called FinOps. So that's a term that you may be familiar with. Do you know what FinOps is? Have you heard oh, that term? Yeah, absolutely. FinOps is financial optimizations, of course. Or financial operations, I heard different versions, but FinOps basically is the science behind financial optimizations of your spend on the cloud, on-prem, whatever. But it's the science behind that. How do I optimize? How do I make sure that I do not have wasted uh, money or waste resources, underutilization, and so on in my uh, environment? Right. So if I have my podcast business and I've, you know, got some services that I pay for, or we could say it's the the cat photo sharing business, because I think that's a better example. Cat photo sharing probably has a ton of infrastructure. You've got different managed services for different like image recognition things going on to make sure all the images are actually cats. And I've got enough going on in my company that if I allocate resources to FinOps, it's going to take some resources away from the main, you know, the main things that I'm doing, building software, perhaps finding advertisers, perhaps working with my community. So what's the strategy for allocating resources to the process of FinOps? If you're a company with traction, when do you start to just look at your infrastructure and say, okay, where can I save money? So FinOps is becoming more and more acceptable in the industry because of the maturity of cloud usage over the recent years and customers have reached certain scales of spend on the cloud where they just have to better understand what they are paying for and find ways to optimize their spend. So there are different options. The, the first option for customers is that there are many third-party solutions out there in the market that provide uh, SaaS solutions for analyzing and recommending, analyzing your spend and, and providing you with recommendations 
on how to save your, your cost. And the second aspect of that is working with partners. There are partners in the industry uh, for all cloud vendors that have made uh, financial optimizations part of their offering, and it's part of their specializations. We have to understand that, again, not only cloud is not uh, uh, normally your business, but understanding the structure of cost uh, on any cloud takes a lot of uh, learning and understanding. There are a lot of moving parts uh, to your cost, and you have to understand them and know them in order to be able to make optimizations and recommend savings. So either you invest in internal resources to learn, study, and deploy such knowledge, and you, granted you choose that, you have to understand that it's not a one-time thing. It's, you don't do it once a year or once uh, every six months. It's an ongoing work, especially when you start to increase your spend and the type of resources that you have on, on the cloud. So you have to either invest in it internally or hire a consultant or a partner that will help you do that, which is something that they are knowledgeable about and have good experience, proven good experience in optimizing customers' cost. Now, another thing to consider is the fact that cost optimization can come and probably does come from the most part from understanding what you are paying for. And you can optimize your cost just by taking on, for example, reservations and commitments and uh, choosing the right storage type, like we discussed earlier. But it can also come from changing your architecture. For example, many AWS customers don't know that traffic between availability zone has a cost. It's not just traffic out of your VPC that has costs associated with it. So you have to basically analyze if you are running on high availability applications, on multi-AZ production and so on, if it's cost effective, if it's right for you, if it's the right time for you to do that. It has benefits, of course, redundancy, discontinuity, uh, and so on. But it has a cost associated with that. And you have to juggle between these two options and decide what the optimal working method is for you. This is what you are in the business of working on. At Do It International, you run a cloud consulting company. Full disclosure, you're a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. But it, this is a very interesting topic to me. So why did you decide to start a cloud consulting company, and what do you do for engineering organizations? So, yeah, we, we are basically, actually, we stumbled across, across cost optimization uh, by accident, and I will tell you exactly how, but we are basically an engineering company, and we help customers which are either new to the cloud or existing cloud customers to optimize the workloads, to better understand how to design uh, the application on on the cloud, the architecture, uh, deployment, support, and so on. And we are basically regarded as the trusted advisors of, of our customers and of companies that are running on, on the cloud. And they discuss various topics with us on uh, maybe they want to change their application, what services to use, is this specific service the right one for me or should I uh, look for an alternative how do I uh, optimize my workload on a specific cloud provider or a specific service and so on? And several year, years back, and we started our, our business based on the partnership with Google. It started with G Suite and then cloud and then Google Maps. 
but in, in respect to uh, Google Cloud, so we realized early on, several years back, that not only our customers are flying blind uh, in a sense of spend, but us also as resellers, we were missing a lot of information on what our customers are doing spend-wise on, on the cloud. So we started to invest in that, in uh, one, understanding all the various moving parts of, uh, that comprise your spend on Google Cloud. And then not only that, but we also developed uh, a solution which is called Reoptimize, which is free for anyone to use uh, on Google Launcher or with us. And we built a solution which gives customers, specifically Google Cloud customers, three main things. The first thing that it increases visibility as to what they are spending on Google Cloud today. So it's like walking into a, uh, a totally dark room and we give you a torchlight to focus on specific areas of interest and better understand what you are paying for and, uh, uh, and so on. The second thing is that machine learning running on top of that. So no more bill shock. Anytime that we detect a financial anomaly in your spend, we alert you on that. So everybody faced this probably more than once working on the cloud. And, you know, some engineer made a mistake and left a huge cluster on running for the weekend. And you will find that out probably just when the invoice comes. Uh, yeah, and, it, and it still happens. And, and many companies are not aware of that and they do not put the right gatekeepers on, the, on that, budget management, alerts, and, and so on. So that's the second thing that we do. And the third thing, which is part of Reoptimize, is a recommendation engine. So basically giving you a recommendation on how to optimize your spend and what aspect of your spend are costing you a lot of money and maybe you should consider optimizing those. In addition to that, as far as AWS, for example, is concerned, so we partnered several years back with Cloud Health Technologies, purchased recently by uh, VMware, and they had a great solution of, again, providing customers with insights and better understanding on what they are paying for. And using that tool with our knowledge, we provide customers the right uh, information that they need in order to optimize their spend and in many cases, cut their costs down. I can't tell you how many times I sat with customers on a one hour meeting and you walk out of that meeting and you save the customer like $100,000 a year just by showing them that they did not terminate their unattached EBS volumes, for example. Or, you know, things like that, which are very trivial, but because you are not in the business of managing clouds, you don't always see that and you are not aware of those tricks. And it's something which is, you know, we regard it as part of our service and obligation to the customers. It's not only about the engineering and the technical aspects, but it's also about cost. Because if you advise your customer on a certain architecture, if it's not cost-effective, it's, it's, it's a bad recommendation. So it has to be also cost-effective. I don't know where you're from, but in, in the United States, we have these uh, television shows where you'll have the host of the show comes into businesses like restaurants, and then he'll like tell them everything that's wrong with their business, and then he'll like show them how to... You know, here's how you you know rework the menu, or like you know you need to open up this extra room for for more guests, or you need to get new lighting, or you know, and the whole and the, the whole thirty minute episode will be about just this person you know coming in and showing them how to run their business a little bit more efficiently. 
that kind of seems like what you do for cloud infrastructure. Exactly um, that. That's a yeah. What? That's a great example. What's the most egregious case where you've come in and you see somebody and you're like, you are spending like five million dollars more than you need to. What? What is? What's the most egregious mistake that you've seen? So we've seen some. I would call them sad stories, but. One example that I can share, which is uh, a public uh, online, it's been published, is uh, work that we've done with a company called Jelly Button, which are in the gaming business. Jelly Button. Uh, yeah. So Jelly Button actually used a monitoring solution, which is called Mixpanel, which oh, yeah. let let's scrub the name. <laughs> no, no, I was just I was saying I was saying oh no because I've looked at mixed panel pricing before. Exactly. So we don't we don't need to scrub the name. <laughs> exactly. So so it's there. It's in the public use case. Uh, so yeah, mixed panel has a great solution, but it has again a price tag associated with it due to the licensing aspect and other aspects that you can consider. Be- because by the way, they're the market leader. Exactly, and that's okay to charge a premium when you are the market leader. But there are alternatives. So we've sat with JellyButton and we actually moved them to Google's BigQuery solution and we managed to save them $240,000 a year just by moving from Mixpanel to BigQuery. It gives them, you know, they're not losing any functionality or visibility or anything like that, but it just requires some, some work. So the operational, yeah, so op, you have operational costs in the migration, but once it's set up, you're good. Yeah, exactly, and that's one-time cost. It's not ongoing, which is the scariest part of any cost structure is the ongoing cost that you have. And that's, that's what happened there. And, you know, in general, customers should not be concerned, scared, or intimidated by looking for other, other alternatives. Everybody's busy, everybody's promoting their businesses, and they have their you know, business to run. And they're getting used to paying for something which is not necessarily the right solution for them. So invest this one time, do a discovery on, on your architecture, on your third-party solutions, and check other alternatives. Maybe doing it yourself, like you know, moving from to, to BigQuery, which basically means you do it yourself, will be more cost-effective and maybe from the technical aspects also the right fit for you. So don't be alarmed. Don't, don't be frightened from that. Do you ever look at these cloud provider businesses like Google Cloud or AWS and just think, oh my God, this is the best business ever. They have the best business ever. They just, they, it's like, and they keep building higher and higher level services that they charge more and more. Like we think Mixpanel, like you look at Mixpanel, you're like, Jesus, their margins are good. But like, that's what AWS or Google Cloud is on like a massive scale. Like not just monitoring your, your mobile game. It's like every aspect of your infrastructure they have really good margins on. Exactly. And I think the people that can, you know, first and foremost appreciate that are those that have been in the industry for a while and remember what it meant to acquire a server, what you had to go through until that server was in production, all the procurement process, choosing the right spec, having the shipment arrive, installing whatever you need on it, and then shipping it to the data center and installing it there. And it just took forever. And I came from that business. I I managed uh, a co-location infrastructure. And when AWS came came up, and I remember the first EC2 instance that I launched, 
and it it was I was like shocked that instead of wasting a month on getting that server installed in the in the data center, I got it like in less than an hour because I had to learn. It was my first EC2 to launch. I like did it super slow and better understand how to do that and definitions and security groups and policies and all that. And it was working and accessible and installed. And it was wow. And then, of course, since then, you know, it's it's all ancient history. And today it's like everything that you need. And that's the, you know, one of the targets uh, that the big cloud vendors have is to provide you with a comprehensive solution under a single provider, a single roof that will take care of your uh, every need. It can be from your uh, production, staging, testing, operational department, finance, uh, finance department. So everything is there already. And it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. Just to complete that, if you look at the pace of innovation that happened over the past six, seven, eight years, even though AWS were here like 12 years ago, and then you know, the others joined. But if you just look at the last Six, seven, eight years, I mean, it's it's just mind-blowing. This is why I'm so offended by the tech lash, That's kind of the, the, the backlash against tech companies in the press, or it's like, oh, Amazon is ruining work for people, all these warehouse workers that are underpaid. And I'm like, do, do you understand that Amazon is responsible for the tech boom that we've had since like 2006? Like Amazon... Anyone claiming that just is too scared of adopting change and, and being part of this wave. Any cloud vendor does not come to replace anyone, but you have to adjust. You have to learn a new skill set. You have to change the way that you work. And if you are not part of that, you are out of the game. And I hear that still today. And, and again, it's just, I can't understand why. why. I mean, uh, people are scared of change, period. I understand what they are, why they are claiming that and acting on, on accordingly. But I just don't understand it. It's here. It's going to stay here. You're going to be on the cloud. Most chances you are already on the cloud, even if you are not aware of that with different SaaS solutions that you are using and so on. So, you know, get your knowledge up to par, get experience, get your fingers dirty and start working on the cloud and you'll discover a different world, which, you know, of course, from my perspective is is a better one. Okay, here's something I want you to answer for me. So I've done so many shows about Kubernetes and migrating to Kubernetes and standing up your Kubernetes and so on. And there's a, lot, a million ways to do it, very early days. But when I look at Kubernetes, I'm like, this is, you could build your infrastructure out of managed services, high-level managed services, and and Lambda functions, AWS Lambda functions. And there's people who are like standing up their own Kubernetes or doing multi-cloud Kubernetes. And, and they, they want to have this control over their infrastructure. They want to not feel locked into proprietary solutions. And I'm like, you know, there is a big cost to doing that. You know, you, you, you will gain so much speed if you go the route of wiring together, you know, DynamoDB with AWS Lambda and triggering things and having event-driven whatevers. Like, am I crazy or is like that a more cost efficient, not only, not only more operationally efficient, 
but more cost-efficient way of managing your infrastructure. You are 100% right. And yeah, we do come across many customers that have this fear of vendor locking, which you can understand, but you reach customers that are running their production on a single vendor for a few years now. They have no plans to change that, but they are still refusing to enjoy the full benefits of managed services on that cloud provider, saving costs, optimizing the way that you work, operational efficiency and all that. Just because conceptually, there is this thing which is called vendor locking. And it's just, why not? You're not going anywhere. And even if you decide to do that, it's going to take you time to plan and check the alternatives. And you can move away from any kind of solution. And it's just, it's just misleading. And it's the same, like uh, we talked a lot about cost optimizations, but it's the same as not opting for commitments in order to get uh, uh, discounts, reserved instances, uh, committed use discounts. I mean, you are running the, your workloads there. You are not going anywhere. Why not take full advantage of that and save costs? I mean, what are you afraid of? So that's, that's my view on that. I understand it at the early stage deployments where, again, you are unsure about where you're going to be in six months from now. But once you become more mature and the probability of you moving from one platform to another is going down, so why not enjoy uh, the managed services and the proprietary services that the cloud uh, vendor has to offer? Any, any solution can be replaced. So Here's the other thing that I think gets misunderstood about the state of cloud today. You have people looking at the cloud providers like they're in a race. So it's like AWS versus Google Cloud. AWS doesn't have a BigQuery. AWS has got to build a BigQuery kind of thing. Or Google Cloud doesn't have as strong as integrated an offering for, uh, I don't know, serverless functions or and serverless triggers and things. And you know, when, when are they going to catch up with each other? And I think what people miss is these are just software companies. These are like, they're not in direct competition with each other. I mean, they kind of are, but it's more like you've got this blue ocean of cloud provider potential. And yeah, maybe we're kind of like in the early days and they're both building their primitives and, and, you know, you've got digital ocean over here. They're kind of building their primitives, but the direction that these things are going in is just going to be totally i think it's going to be like increasingly disjoint they're just going to have different like pros and cons and they're going to have their own like little benefits and it'll be easy to integrate them it'll be easy to have multi-cloud you know different api high level managed services and it's going to be really cool for developers because you're just going to be able to choose from this giant buffet of different high level services so tell me where I'm wrong about that thesis. I don't think that you are wrong. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, again, we're living in this amazing period of time where technology is like everywhere and innovation and the competition between the cloud vendors is just working. It's just, you know, the customers are benefiting from that. And you have to... Again, we see that, I mean, everybody was running on a single cloud platform up to, I would say, a couple of years ago, more or less, three years ago. But then as the work that you are doing became more complex, 
more diverse. Your requirements are different. You have different departments that are now utilizing the, the cloud. So you have much more options and flexibility to choose what is the right fit for your application and, and or whatever you are trying to run. Each cloud has a great pros and cons. You have to understand that and just choose what is the right solution for you based on your specific use case. And if people want to understand more about, and let's focus just for a minute on, on AWS and, and Google Cloud, if people really want to understand the differences between them, they should think about where each company started its way from. So basically, AWS started as, you know, Amazon.com, and this is why you see the segregated islands, the regions, which have no connection with other regions. It's just a standalone region with amazing buffet of services and, and options for you to choose from, but it's isolated. And in relation to that, for example, if you look at Google Cloud, which is, you know, Google.com, the search engine, had to provide uh, services on a global scale. So you have uh, the private-owned fiber network of Google, which is uh, all the data centers and all the regions are connected on and running on, on top of that network. So you have to un better understand where they, are come, where they came from and then dive into the services and find the right uh, fit for you. But the competition is, is great and you know, pushing the innovation to brand new uh, amazing services that we all enjoy. What do you think about edge computing and the cloud making its way to the edge? So you have you have these some different trends. So you have like first of all you have the oil rigs like or you have uh, the shipping shipyards like shipping container yards and these are like areas where you have maybe unreliable Wi-Fi connections and you've got some devices that are on-prem. You've got servers on-prem because they need to help with, you know, predictive analytics or maybe it's just running some on-prem factory software. And the cloud providers are making their way into these these sort of on-prem businesses and they're injecting machine learning into the factory processes, but they're they're still operating like cloud providers. So they have these services like Lambda at the Edge or AWS Greengrass and then you also have it kind of happening on mobile where you have services like I think it's AppSync there's a some AWS service that's like you know for mobile applications and helps you make your mobile applications you know build your mobile applications faster and more efficiently so we've got the cloud providers like reaching their tendrils into like our devices our own process like this is my processor get away from my processor I shouldn't have to pay for this this is not on the cloud this is on my machine but what, what's going on there? What do you think is going to happen at the edge? So if I understood the question correctly, is that you are referring to distributed workloads, right? Or I misunderstood Well, I, I guess I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually curious how you think it's going to affect your business also. Like, I mean, you know, as these cloud providers move into the edge and they're, you know, working with the factories, they're working with the oil refineries, and then, you know, they're obviously, you know, charging a lot for, for certain services. And then, you know, I guess that's going to affect your business because then you're going to be working with oil refineries and factories or, or maybe you already are. Yeah. So, yeah, you do see a shift in what we call 
born to the cloud businesses versus the more traditional ones. So yeah, the first and I would say second phases of cloud adoption were relatively easy. Cloud native companies didn't see a whole uh, other option but to run on the cloud versus the more traditional businesses that are running on-premise or on co-locations, on remote uh, locations. And the way that you cannot disregard the cloud now, today, in anything that you do, these businesses are not immune. And we, we see the shift in adoption in the uh, traditional businesses, the enterprise businesses. Everybody already has a kind of footprint on the cloud today. It does change the business a bit because, first and foremost, the cloud vendors are developing solutions that will also fit those kinds of businesses and not only the cool, cutting-edge, high-tech startups. So you see more development investments going towards those sectors. For example, you saw in the recent uh, Google Next, uh, Kubernetes on-prem was uh, announced. And, you know, why did Google do that? Well, I think it, it came up because one of the uh, criticisms on Google uh, and the enterprise uh, vertical is the fact that they were almost non-existent there. And they completely, um, you know, surprised everybody with on-prem Kubernetes, which is a game changer. Again, now traditional businesses, large enterprises that are running co-location have a solution that will connect them to the cloud from their own infrastructure. So the change is more gradual and will allow them to adopt cloud in a more uh, suitable manner for them. It's a game changer, and we see all cloud vendors tapping towards that, those, those kind of companies and invest a lot of money and development for those. All right. Well, this has been super interesting. Everybody who is listening, if you're paying a lot of money for your cloud provider then you should reach out to Do It International. You should go to our link. We have a promo link. And I, I don't, you know, there are some some companies that, you know, that advertise on the show that I, you know, I, I feel on the fence sometimes about it. Do It International, I don't really feel conflicted about advertising at all because it's pretty much, people will only become a client of yours if they're going to save money. So I don't really feel troubled in promoting your business. So I hope people check it out. And it's been really fun talking to you, Rand. Jeffrey, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you for all those listening and hope to hear from you soon. Wow.